And so Psalm chapter 19, a Psalm of David, and let's read together. David writes, and he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we have gathered here exclusively in your name and for your purposes. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that we've been blood-bought through the sacrifice of your Son being given for the sins of the world. We thank you for the church that we're a part of, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, that your kingdom uh, it, it continues to advance and, and, and progress is continually made, Lord, in your name. And we're thankful for what you've intended, Lord, as you've brought us here tonight, Lord, to hear the Word of God. And so we ask you, Lord, that even now that your Holy Spirit would fill us, the blood of Jesus Christ would purify and cleanse us, that your presence would descend upon this place and that you'd enter into your very words. And we ask you, Lord, that you would soften us and prepare us for what you want to speak. And we thank you, Lord, for all of these things. We lift up those that are out in New Jersey tonight. We pray for Pastor Bobby and Liz and their family. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen them and use them. We pray for those that are making decisions for you tonight, Lord, out there on the shoreline. And we ask, Lord, that you would reach into lives and that you would miraculously save. And, Father, we just thank you, Lord, that we get to be a part of this thing called the kingdom. And so we ask you, Lord, please bless your people and bless your time. Bless this church service. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The psalm that we have before us and the very heading of it, it tells us that it is a psalm of David. What we know of David as we study his life, among many other things, is that we know that David was an avid lover of nature. During the younger part of his life, he was a shepherd in the hills and plains of Bethlehem, keeping his father's sheep. And oftentimes, as a shepherd, he would spend many days and nights out in the field 
uh, keeping watch and, and just observing all of the things that there were out there in the Judean wilderness. A little bit later on in David's life, when he was being prepared for his eventual calling to become the king of the nation of Israel, uh, David was spending several years day and night out in, in the field as he was running from a jealous king, not knowing if he would have life even for one more day as he would uh, just seek to survive. And so living in caves and out in the fields or in the forests of the various places there again in the Judean wilderness. A little bit later on in David's life, once he became the king of Israel, we read that Hiram, the king of Tyre, shipped in cedars from Lebanon, some of the most sought-after lumber in the world in David's day, and that he constructed David a palace that was made completely out of these cedars. And we see that once David even came to a point in his life where he didn't have to live outside anymore, that now he desired to bring the outside inside because he wanted to be in that presence that was so uh, important to him. As we read many of the Psalms and the writings that David uh, gives to us, they reveal to us uh, that David not only had a great love for the creation of God, the things that he saw out there, but also the things David shares with us that he learned about God by observing his creation and being out inside of it. And certainly uh, there was so much that God revealed to David and there's so much that God reveals to us through the things that he made. And in the psalm that's before us here tonight, Psalm chapter 19, David shares with us probably one of the most profound and the most important lessons that God ever taught David uh, through nothing more than his creation. Something that had a lasting effect upon him for his life and something that he passes on to us. And it's a message that if you and I can grab a hold of it, if we can hear what David, by the Spirit of God, is seeking to communicate to us tonight through this parable or through this picture that God has laid out, then it is certain to change us forever and to be an advantage for us for the rest of our lives. And so David begins in the very beginning of the psalm, and he introduces it by just simply saying to us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, when the Bible talks about the heavens, there are three different um, places that it can be referring to. Um, the first heavens, according to the scriptures, is just the, the atmosphere that's inside of the earth. So the air that we breathe, uh, the thing that we move about in, the, the currents of the wind and, and, and the weather and all that that we're exposed to. That's what the Bible refers to as the first heavens. It's, it's not heaven, but it's heavens. The second heaven that the Bible refers to is what is immediately outside the confines of our earth. And so that would be outer space, the place where the moon is, where uh, the stars, the other planets, the solar systems, the galaxies, all of that, that that is contained in this thing that we call the universe, uh, the, the, the expanse that we know of. That's what the Bible refers to as the second heavens. And then the third heavens is speaking of the very dwelling place of God. So when we talk about going to heaven once we die, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that at one point in his life, he was caught up into the third heavens and he saw things that human language can't express because they're so far outside the realm of human understanding. 
Now, when David talks to us about the heavens in Psalm chapter 19, he's referring to the second heavens. We know that because he goes on to talk about them. He says that day unto day is uttering speech and night unto night shows knowledge. And he's talking about what he would observe in the passing of one day into the next And then what he would see as one night would then fold into another night. And so David is telling to us that those very entities, the heavens and the things that are in them, are declaring to us a message. They're speaking to us and they have a message for anyone that will listen. And that message, David tells us again in verse 1, concerns the glory of God. And when it talks about the glory of God, it's talking about his substance or his weight or his worth or his value. Or that is that there is something about the value of God himself that's being expressed incessantly by the heavens and the earth in their very existence. And it's a message that's open to to all of us. Now, David tells us that there are three specific elements about the heavens and the firmament and the day and the night that, that are speaking to us. He tells us, first of all, that the passing of one day into the next. In verse two, he says that day unto day uttereth speech. That is, that just in in the rising of the sun one day, and then it's setting, and then the rising of the sun the next day, and it's setting, and so on and so forth, that there's something being declared to us in the actual rising and the setting of the sun. The second thing that David says is speaking to us is the night sky. He tells us again in the second half of verse 2 that night unto night is showing knowledge. That when the brightness of the day fades into the darkness of the night and what is revealed by that in just the, 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 the stars in their place set and the galaxies and the various things that are observable to the naked eye, that there is something that's being spoken, something that's being revealed by the very existence of those things. And then number three, David says that we're being spoken to by the circuit of the sun as it passes by observation, through the sky just in the course of a single day. So the rising of the sun in the morning and then the moving of the sun through its path. And, and of course, we know that the, you know, the sun is, is in its place and the earth is spinning, but it gives to us the appearance as though the sun is moving through the sky. And so it's apex and zenith in the middle of the day and the heat of the day and then the passing of the afternoon into the evening and then the setting of the sun. And David tells us that these things day unto day, night unto night, and then the circuit of the sun in its rising, in its strength, and then in its setting, that these things are declaring to us a message. Now, what we know about the message that's being spoken to us in the firmament is that number one, it's a message that is absolutely incessant. That it doesn't matter what time of day or what season of life or whether it was what age, whether it was the dark ages or the middle ages or the modern era or any time in history, that the message of those things is incessantly speaking to whatever human being will listen to that message. It's an incessant message. We also know that it's an inaudible message. 
It isn't as though that if you could fine-tune your uh, faculty of hearing to the right frequency, that then you would be able to hear, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a word, and I'm making it out, or a sound, or something. No, no, it's not a message that we hear with the physical ear, but it's a message that's communicated in a different way, and maybe even to a deeper part, but it's an inaudible message. And the reason why it's an audible message is because, number three, it's intended by God to be a universal message. Meaning, as David says in verse three, that there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And that what David is saying is it doesn't matter if you speak Russian or Spanish or English or if you've never spoken a word in your life. If you are alive and you can observe the things that God has created in the firmament, then you are able to comprehend and hear the message that God is seeking to communicate through the existence and the creation of these very things. Well, what is the message that these things are speaking? David tells to us the message as he received it in verses 7 through 9. He tells us that the message is, first of all, that the law of the Lord is perfect unto the converting of the soul. He tells us, secondarily, that the testimony of the Lord, that is, the things that God testifies or the things that he speaks or bears witness to with his mouth, that the testimony of the Lord is sure, that it's absolute, it's tested ground, it's absolutely trustworthy, and that it makes wise the simple. He tells us, third of all, that the statutes of the Lord are right. Now, the statutes are the principles, things that are just true in principle form. And so he says that if God sets forth a principle concerning something in life, then we can absolutely be certain that those principles are right principles. They're correct principles and that they rejoice the heart. That's the outcome of those that can comprehend and understand them. He tells us, fourthly, that the commandments of the Lord are pure. And commandments are nothing more than instructions. That is that when God gives instructions concerning something, we're told that those instructions are pure instructions, meaning that they come from a pure motive and they have a pure outcome. There's no crookedness in what God is seeking to uh, get us to align our lives with in the commandments that he gives. Now, sometimes when a human being gives commandments, those commandments aren't pure. There can be a law that has a crooked motive or that benefits the person who's giving the law, but not necessarily the person who's obeying that law, but not so with God. He says that when God gives a commandment, that commandment is pure and that that commandment will lead to the enlightening of the eyes, or that is that it will give clarity of vision so that we understand where we are in life and where we're going in life. He tells us fifthly that this message that's being spoken to us is that the fear of the Lord is clean. And the fear of the Lord simply means to respect to revere and to hold God in the highest awe. So the fear of the Lord is clean. And so when we come to a place in our lives where we respect God for who he is and we fear him and that fear of him has an effect upon us, 
that that's going to have a very cleansing uh, part in, in our hearts, that the fear of the Lord is absolutely clean and it endures forever. He tells us um, nextly, sixthly, that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And so the judgments of the Lord are very simply his decisions. That is that when God makes up his mind that he's going to act in a certain way or that he's going to respond to something in a certain way or deal with something in a certain way, that the Bible is declaring to us that that judgment, that that decision that God has made is a true and righteous decision. That not only is God basing that decision upon complete knowledge of the facts in a given situation, but what he does in response to that knowledge is absolutely righteous. That no one's going to look on any judgment that God ever hands down and say, that was crooked or that was unfair or that, that just was unequitable in some way and you were too harsh with that or you were too lenient with that. No, he says that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Now, when we look at this message that's being declared by the firmament and we see the six things that David um, kind of ascribes to the speech of creation itself in this way, What's the common denominator that all six of these facets or aspects have in common? And the answer is they all speak of the word of God, his commandments, his testimonies, his statutes, his law, his fear, and his judgments all speak of the word of God or the things that God says and the things that come out of God's mouth. Now, we all could probably hear, sitting here in a Saturday night service at Calvary Chapel, we would all agree with all of the things that David says concerning the words of God. That yes, absolutely, they are perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true and righteous altogether. They do all of the things that God says. But the question that I have in all of this is how in the world did David get from day passing unto day night passing unto night, and the sun rising and setting in the course of a day, how did he get from that to the message being that the word of God is perfect and sure and complete in all the rest? Well, firstly, and very fundamentally, very foundationally, the very existence of the heavens and the creation and every part of it is the byproduct of the word of God. I mean, how did all of those things come into existence? The Bible says they came into existence because God spoke them into existence. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Moses goes on to tell us that the way in which God created the heavens and the earth is that he spoke those things into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was what? Light. Very literally, it's God said, light be, and light was. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, he says that through faith, we understand that by the word of God, the worlds were framed or, or, or put into motion, that they came into existence. Literally, the eras or the substance, all that God made. So that the things that are seen were not made of things which do appear. 
that the very existence of all of God's creative works are the byproduct of God's word. And so in that they're the very byproduct of God speaking those things into existence, it stands to reason that those things would also then be a reflection of their father, of the thing that birthed them or sired them into existence. That is the very word of God. It is a reflection. So what is the message that these things give to us concerning the word of God? As God would have us to receive the message that the firmament is incessantly speaking to us. What it is saying to us is, first of all, and if you're taking note, you can jot these down, is that the word of God, the things that God says, the things that are recorded for us in the pages of scripture, the word of God is absolutely trustworthy. David says that day unto day utters speech. And what day unto day is uttering in the passing of one day into the next is that God's word is absolutely faithful and God's word is absolutely trustworthy. Let me ask you a question tonight. When's the last time you wondered as you went to to, to bed at night and, and you were there waiting to fall asleep, you wondered if the sun was actually going to rise the next morning and, and you would see light when, when your head sprung off of your pillow. When's the last time you, you worried about that when you went to bed? I can tell you, I've never in my entire life that I can recall worried or couldn't fall asleep because I wondered if there was going to be another day when I woke up, if the sun was going to to rise. That's one of those things that we absolutely take completely for granted in in our uh, daily walking through this life is that the sun is going to rise. It's something that is so sure. It's something that God has set in motion and it is not going to fail. I mean, until the day that God says it's going to fail at the very end. But until that time, One day folds into the next and the sun rises and the sun sets. And that is something that is absolutely trustworthy. And the word of God, the things that God says, hold that same level, if not even a greater level of trustworthiness. That is that we can take the things that God has said. We can take his commandments, his laws, his testimonies, his statutes, his judgments, the recorded things that he has laid down for us here. And those things are a safe resting place for me to lay my life upon with absolute assurance that if I do that, my life is safe. My life is in a safe place. I never have to worry about God's word not being or not doing what God says it is or, 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 or doing what he says that it's going to do. I can place the full weight of trust upon God's word and I can rest that that is a, a wise thing for me to do. The proverb tells us that the word of God, every word that God has spoken is like silver that's been refined in a, in a refining pot seven times. That is, that every word of God has been absolutely tested to the point where not one of those words can fail. And before God laid any of it out, he made absolute certain that I can trust in everything that he says. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary and told her that she was going to conceive and that the child that she was going to conceive would come from the Holy Ghost... 
She questioned the plausibility or the possibility of what Gabriel was confronting or presenting her with in this this thing that was going to happen. And Gabriel's word to Mary was this. He said, listen, understand this maiden, maidservant. Understand that with God, nothing shall be impossible. In the literal translation of what Gabriel said to Mary that day, he said, with God, not one word is without power. Meaning that if God has said something, then we can be absolutely certain that what God said is absolutely true and completely reliable. God said to the prophet Jeremiah, and he said, I am the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 55, he said that as the snow falls down from heaven and as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth so that it gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Listen, God says, so shall my word be that comes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it will accomplish that which I please, and it will prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. And when God speaks a word and records it for us in Scripture, he stands behind what he said with the existence of his very self. And not one word with God will ever be without power. So what does that mean? It means that I am in a position as part of God's creation that when I put my faith and my trust in him, I can rest every part of my life upon his word with the absolute assurance that that's a safe place for me to rest myself. Meaning that I can build my moral foundation and standing upon the things that God says and I can trust that the outcome of those things is going to be right. I can frame my ideals according to what God says, this is right and this is wrong. And I can know that if I do that, that I'm going to be on the right side of things and on the safe side of things. I know that if I set my ways, that I want my ways to be what God says are the right ways in his word. That if I build those things into my life and I make his ways my ways, then I know that's going to be a safe path for me to walk down. And I know I'm going to get ultimately where I'm going. And I can trust that if I let God's word govern who I am from the foundation up, then I can trust absolutely that the outcomes that will be in my life are going to be the right outcomes and the best outcomes. I can trust God's word with the same level of trust that I believe that the sun will rise and that the sun will set. The second thing that David communicates to us or that the heavens literally communicate to us and it's in the passing of one night into the next is that we can, or you and I, that we can chart the course of our life based upon or by the word of God. In David's times, they didn't have maps. Did you know that? Well, they might have had maps in a primitive sense, but they certainly didn't have GPS. There was no TomTom. There was no Magellan. There was no AAA. There was no triptychs and all all the things that kind of we rely upon nowadays when we want to go somewhere and and, and trust that we're going to get where we're seeking to go. None of those things were available in those days. And in those days, if someone wanted to give directions, what they would do is that they would use the stars. If someone did want to make a map, then they were completely dependent and reliant upon the stars in their position in order to create and make those maps. 
They discovered and they understood that the things that God had set, the lesser lights to rule by night, the constellations in their place, that they were so calculated and so steadfast in their place and where they would be in the night sky and the various seasons, that they were able to use those as a gauge to understand where they were on earth and how to get where it was that they were desiring to go. And so all of their their, their navigation systems were dependent upon these, uh, the stars that they would see in the sky because of their accuracy, their predictability, and their stability. They realized that they were a reliable guide. Now, for you and I, the bigger issue in our lives is not if we're going to get to wherever it is that we're seeking to go in an event, you know, we're trying to go to a graduation party or we're seeking to get somewhere on vacation. That, that's really the, the lesser thing that, that matters to us in this life. But every one of us have two destinations that we desire to successfully make our way to. Number one, most obviously, is that every one of us, I hope here tonight, wants to go to heaven. That we're hoping that we can chart the course of our life in such a way So as that when we come to the end of the whole thing, we don't find out that we were lost or that we were just wandering, hoping that we would end up in our destination, but not sure if we would absolutely get there. We want to know that we're going to get to heaven. The other destiny or destination that you and I hope to achieve or obtain is that thing that we were created for. The Bible says that that we were foreordained for good works that God created that we should walk in them. And none of us want to come to the end of our life and realize that we never fulfilled the purpose for which God made us in this world. But the question is, how can we be certain that we're going to end up in those places? That when I die, I'll be before the Lord. And that while I live, I'm walking in the path that God has mapped out for my life. Well, the answer, very simply, is based on The word of God. The word of God is a reliable source and a reliable place for me to seek direction as it pertains to the things in my life. Of course, as it pertains to heaven, the gospel of Jesus Christ is laid out for us in scripture. That if I'll confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, if I'll turn from my own life and come to Christ on his terms and be born again, then the Bible says that salvation is a gift of God that's not by works, lest any man should boast. And so the Bible gives me direction as to how to end up in heaven. As it pertains to the things of my life on earth, God lays out the path and he says, this is the way that you're to walk in. And as I do that, I can be certain that I'm going to end up where I'm supposed to be. And so you might be here tonight and you might be in the stage of life where you're choosing a path for your future. You're choosing a career. Or you might be in a part of your life where you're starting a family and beginning to raise kids. Or you're building building yourself up to a place now in your life where you need to learn how to manage your finances or your time or your relationships. Or maybe you're in a marriage and you think, I'm in a marriage and I have no idea how to be in a marriage. Or I'm raising kids and I have no idea how to raise kids. How can I successfully navigate this? Well, God gives us the answer in his word. And when I look to the Lord and I say, God, what do you say about how I should build my life and the things that I should give myself to, and the things that I should be looking for in a career, and the things that I should build into that. God, what do you say? 
God says, if you follow what I say, you're going to end up in the right place. How do I, how do I operate in a marriage? God, I, I, I realize I have this spouse and it's incredible blessing and incredible responsibility, but I have no idea how to behave myself in a marriage. God, how do I do that? How do I make sure, Lord, that 20 years from now I don't end up a train wreck or divorce or that there's been an affair, some kind of an adultery or some, some kind of a wreck? How do I avoid that? God says, I've laid it out for you in my word. If you'll look at what I've said, if you'll order your relationships accordingly, you're going to see success in, in them, in those relationships. And so the word of God is a reliable way for me to chart the course of my life and see to it that I end up where God wants me to be. It's amazing to me how blurry life is in the windshield, isn't it? I mean, how many of us have a clear vision for where we're going to be in five years or even five months or, or five hours? It's so difficult to do that, isn't it? And so often the questions and the things that plague us are the things that are the unknowns concerning the future. What also amazes me is the clarity that there is in the rearview mirror. I look behind me and I see where I've come from. I go, oh yeah, I see how that happened. And I see right how I got where I am today. This happened and this happened and this happened. And sometimes we long for the kind of clarity looking forward that we have looking backward at how we got to where we are. But we don't have that. None of us have the luxury of it. But what God gives to every one of us is he gives to us a map. He gives to us the faithful testimonies of his word. And when I look to the word of God and I allow that to be the standard and the way in which I'm going to go, then I can be assured that the destination that I come to is going to be the right destination so that you and I can say like Isaac did when he was sent on a journey, um, or not Isaac, but the servant of Abraham, when he was sent to, to gain a bride for Isaac. And he said when he was successful in his journey, he looked at the whole thing and he said, I don't know how any of this worked out. All I know is this, that I was in the way and the Lord led me. It's Genesis chapter 24. I was in the way and the Lord led me. And for you and I, if we will give ourselves to the way of God, we might not know how it's going to happen or when it's going to happen or what it's going to look like, but we can be assured concretely that he will lead us and that we will be successful in the thing that he has called us unto. The third message that's given to us by David, uh, that the heavens speak incessantly to every one of us, is that the word of God is equally effective no matter what stage of life I'm in. David tells us in the, the third and fourth verses of this psalm that the sun has found a place to dwell in. He, calls, he says that in the firmament, in the heavens, there has been created a tabernacle or a dwelling place for the sun. And in that place, David tells us by poetic picture here, he tells us that the sun in that tabernacle has ample room to complete its course. He says that it comes forth out of its place in the morning like a bridegroom, proud and ready to go, full of energy. He says that it rejoices as a strong man to run a race. It makes its way through the intensity of the sky and that nothing is hidden from the heat thereof as it makes its pass all the way through. And so the sun has ample room to both run and to complete its course as it goes through the sky. Now, what's amazing to me in all of this is the great similarity that exists between just the rising 
and the setting of the sun in the course of a single day and a human lifespan. Because they're, they're very much alike, aren't they? I mean, if you think about just the human lifespan, you know, someone comes into the world and it's like a sunrise. You know, the lights are on. I remember seeing when my kids were born and their eyes open up and the sound comes out and they kind of pass from darkness and they're birthed into this world. And as they begin to grow and discover, there's just this brilliant light and this brilliant hope that kind of emanates out of them in the early part of it. And it's filled with hope, just like the first part of the morning is, when the sun just kind of filters through the trees and reflects off the morning dew, and there's just something so energizing and so enlivening about it. And the early part of life is so much like that. But it quickly folds into the middle part of life where there's intensity, where there's great heat, where there's concern, where there's question, where sometimes there's sweat. And, and, and man, you know, what, we're confused almost because we don't know what's going on or what, what's happening around us. And then the intensity of life begins to fade into the evening of life and things begin to settle down. Things aren't so intense anymore. And the energy of the day has now waxed away and things are just a little bit more relaxed and slowed down. And there's a time of reflection and a feeling of exhaustion. And there's a beauty in the retiring of the day and the whole thing. And when we consider that and we lay it over the message that's being spoken to us here, what God is seeking to communicate to, communicate to us is this, is that no matter what stage of life you find yourself in at any given time, the word of God is equally reliable and it's a safe place for you to trust in and live for completely. What age you're at, what stage of life you're in doesn't reduce the power, need, or effectiveness of the word of God. There's a great temptation that happens to many of us is that in the early part of our life, it's easy for us to trust in the Lord especially if we've been brought up in that environment or we have an encounter with God at an early age and we see him, we know him, we discover him and there's a faith and there's a trust and there's a simple reliance, there's fruit that comes out of things. But what can happen is that as life begins to grow more intense and the busyness of life grows and the responsibility and the demands that are placed upon us are greater and greater. The temptation is that we, we, we begin to think, well, I, I have to trust the word of God a little bit less, and I need to rely upon my own strength and my own faculties a little bit more. And let me tell you, that's a mistake. <clears throat> it's a mistake for me to ever think that I need to trust in myself and in my own resources above what God gives and what God says because of the demands and the responsibilities that are placed upon me. It, it's a funny thing. Sometimes I'll, I'll counsel people and, and they'll, they'll bring to me the issues of their life and they'll explain, well, this is going on and this is going on. And it seems like if I do this and I try to fix this and, and then this happens and it just breaks down here and there's all this kind of thing going on and I'm trying this and I'm plugging holes and I'm holding everything together and the whole thing. And as I often do in, in, in almost every counseling session, the first thing after listening to the whole thing, I'll just say, you know what, take your Bible and, and open up to, to this portion of Scripture right here. I want to show you something. And I'll take them to the Scripture and I'll read them, read them a portion of Scripture. And, and sometimes I get the reaction when I, when I talk to people or I say something, I watch their shoulders just kind of drop and I watch their face just kind of, kind of go long a little bit. And they'll look at me, and, and, and they're not saying, they wouldn't dare say it with their mouth. 
But the message is communicated so clearly. They say to me, yeah, that's the Bible, but this is real life. And, and I'll look at them and, 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 you know, my message back to them is, no, 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 no. This is real life. What God says is real life. I want you to think about for just a moment what it must have been like for Joshua. At the apex of his day, he's been waiting his whole life for the level of responsibility that's been placed upon him. There's three million people in a congregation that have been nomads for 40 years. They have no idea how they're going to get where they're going. All they know is that there is a city standing in front of them with walls that are impenetrable and a task that is impossible. And every eye of those people is upon Joshua now as to how it is that he's going to get three million people inside the walls of this unpenetrable city. And if Joshua had succumbed to the temptation of saying, I need to lean on my own resources and my own understanding, then you would have had three million dead Israelites laying outside the walls of that city being eaten by buzzards and ravens. But what did he do? He went out for a walk at night and he sought the Lord. And he saw a man with his sword drawn and he said, are you for us or for our enemies? And the man looked back at Joshua and he gave him an emphatic no as an answer. What? No, no. Are you for us or for our enemies? No. But as captain of the Lord's host, am I now hum? The question, Joshua, is not am I on your side or am I on their side? The question, Joshua, is are you on my side? Because this is my battle and this is my plan. And the intensity that you're feeling in your life right now is my intensity that I've placed upon your life. And are you ready to listen to me? And Joshua removed the sandals from his feet and he gave heed to what God had to say. And God's message to Joshua was this. He said, now you listen. You're going to walk around those walls once a day for seven days. That's it. One time. Walk around the city. Go back to your tents. Every day, seven days. On the seventh day, I want you to walk around the city seven times. And after the seventh time around, tell the men to grab their horns, blow their horns, and then watch what happens. See you later. And he walks away. Whoa, 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 whoa. You want me to go tell them that's the plan. That's the Bible. This is real life. The walls fell. The trumpets were blown. There was a crumbling. There was a shaking. And God made it work. It doesn't matter what stage of life. Sometimes the temptation is not in the intensity of the Middle Ages, but sometimes it's in the twilight years of the older age. Well, you know, I did the Bible thing. It got me through. I've raised my kids. They're doing well. Did a career. Now I'm retired. And now it's just the golden time. It's time to just relax. It's time to just enjoy life. I don't need to rely so much on God anymore. No, 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 no. That's a mistake. It doesn't matter what part of the life that you're in. It's in them that he has set a tabernacle for the sun. Wise is the man, wise is the woman that says, God, your word, that's what I'm going to give myself to no matter what age of life that I'm in. As we close the service tonight and just seek to apply this to our lives and, and to think about how this, what, what does this look like? What does this mean? What is the message? What does God want to say to me in the whole thing? 
I was recently in a pre-marriage counseling session. This is kind of the season of weddings at the church. And I really love doing uh, pre-marriage counseling, especially with a Christian couple, like a real Christian couple. You know, I mean, there's Christian couples, you know, but then sometimes you get like a real Christian couple that they're like, we really want to do this right. We want to do things God's way. And those are just the best, best times. And I was finishing up one of those sessions and I asked the couple, I said um, to them, I said, do you have any questions for me? Is there anything that is kind of looming in you that you want to just kind of air out there in the whole thing? And, and they sat for a minute and reflected and, and the, the, the groom-to-be looked at me. And he said, he said, can I just ask you this? He said, if you were to say the one habit or the one thing that you have built into your life or into your home that has made it what it is, what would you say that is? And I didn't have to think, I didn't miss a beat, I didn't stutter, I didn't say, well, you know, that can be a lot of things. I said to him, I looked at him right at the thing, and I said, hands down, the absolute best thing that I've ever done with my life, and I give complete credit to it, to the, to the grace of God, the, 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 to the glory of God, is that early on in my Christian life, after giving my life to the Lord, is that I cultivated a love for God's word. Early on in my Christian life, I remember the service. I was sitting in a service and I heard the pastor say, he said these words. He said that a young man went up to a minister and he said, don't you think, the young man said, it would be a great and glorious thing to go through the whole Bible. And he said that the response that the preacher gave to the young man, he said, young man, that is a, a noble and worthy aspiration to go through the whole Bible. But he says, but I have one better for you. He says, better than going through the whole Bible is to have the whole Bible go through you. And when I heard those words, there was something inside that I knew what he was saying was absolutely the truth. And I made it at that point the ambition of my life that, God, I want to know your word. I believe everything that you've said. And God, if there's one thing I want to give myself to above everything else, God, I want to give myself to an understanding and a knowledge of the word of God. I want to know the things that you say, and I want to live my life according to it. And I want that to be my ambition. In the year 2001, <clears throat> it was about the time that iPods were coming on the scene and they were becoming mainstream, but they were obscenely expensive and we were just starting out and we didn't have the money. But I went to, um, you know, one of those stores like Best Buy or something in the area where I lived. And they had this knockoff iPad. It was made by a company called Arcos. And it held 20 gigabytes of data. Whoa, you know. And it was about the size of a Walkman, if you can remember those things that held cassette tapes. And it cost 200 bucks, which was a huge stretch. But I knew if I could get it, if I could swing it, then I could put Bible teachings on this thing, and I could take it with me everywhere I went, and I could let the Bible go in my ears, being taught from Genesis to Revelation any time that I wanted. So we did it. We bought the Arcos thing. I was able to get my hands on an MP3 set of a pastor teaching the Bible all the way from Genesis to Revelation, expository style, verse by verse, line by line. And I began to listen to the word of God as I would go through my workday. I would listen to a message in the car. If I was able to at work, I would listen to as many messages as I possibly could. I would listen again on the way home. Once I got home, my wife would say, how'd your day go? And I would go, are you ready? And I would go, 
And I would just unload everything that I heard throughout that entire day. And did you know this? And did you know Abraham said this? And did you know that it points to Jesus in this way? And did you know that when he offered his son, that was a picture of Jesus being offered for our sins? And did you know that when Moses was holding up his arms in the mountain and there was one guy on the right and one guy on the left holding up, that that was a perfect picture of Jesus on Calvary with a thief on the right and a thief on the left. And that's where the battles won. And I was just going on and on and on and just unloading the things of the world of God that had been written in my heart for all of those hours of just listening and listening. And when I finished Revelation with that pastor, I got another set and began to go through the word of God from Genesis to Revelation with another pastor. And I made it so I can't get enough of the Bible. I want to know God. I want to know his word. I just believe that if I make that the epicenter of my very life, that that's the safest, truest, wisest, clearest, prosperous path for my life that it can possibly have. And can I tell you, that was the absolute best decision I ever made with my life, hands down, is to say, God, I want your word to be the very mind through which I think, the very lens through which I see life, the very ideal and standard of what all existence is created upon. God, let it be your word. And then sometime when we started to have our kids, Hosanna was born and then Rocky and Sarah came along. From the time that Hosanna was just old enough to comprehend a story, I would go in her room at night when she was just about to fall asleep and I loaded the star at the ceiling with those glow-in-the-dark stars, and I would shut off the lights and lay on the floor with her. And I would just begin, and I would say, Hosanna, in the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made the real stars, everything that are in them. God made the world and the garden and everything in it. God planted two trees in the garden and just began to tell her the, the stories just from the best I could from memory in the dark as she would just listen and let the word of God. And then it was Hosanna and Rocky. Then it was Hosanna and Rocky and Sarah. And every night that we could, we would take the time to go through the word of God. And can I tell you this? Is that God has been so good to my life because of, well, because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to give any credit to anything of me at all. But the greatest thing that I possess, the riches and the treasures of my life is the word of God that's been written upon my heart. There is nothing like it. And I wouldn't trade the investment that I've made in the word of God in my life for anything that you could ever offer me. No degree, no job, no sum of money, no, no location or place that I could live, no opportunity. There is nothing that I would trade away the word of God for because I can tell you this, is that God has done for my life infinitely greater than I could ever do for my own life. And I accredit it to the word of God. There is nothing like the word. David goes on to equate, as you read on in the psalm, and he says it's more precious than gold. What is the thing that 99% of the population of the world spend their life pursuing? In some fashion or another, gold. But David testifies, and I can testify to you, that the word of God is a more worthy attainment than gold. He says also, it's sweeter than honey. What does honey speak of in the scripture? It speaks of satisfaction. What is 99.9% what is of the world seeking after in their pursuit of gold or whatever else they're chasing after? They're looking for satisfaction. It comes from the word of God. David said, moreover, by them is your servant warned. What are people looking for? Why do they spend hours and hours on the internet and in bookstores and reading magazines and articles? You know why? Because they want a counselor. And you know what? God's given us a counselor. 
The word of God is the greatest counselor. David said, moreover, by them is your servant warned. And he said, and in keeping of them, there is great reward. The hope of what is yet to come that is not yet in my life is absolutely full because I have the word of God. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. The most precious and priceless thing that you and I have in our possession, aside from our salvation and the Holy Spirit, which things are intangible and given to us by God. But the tangible thing that we have is the word of God. And wise is the man or the woman that can hear the message that the heavens are incessantly, universally, yet silently declaring to you and I, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Can you hear what God the Holy Spirit is speaking to us tonight? I close with this passage and the musicians can come. It's a single verse. It's Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23. And the wise man Solomon says this to us. He says this, Buy the truth, sell it not. Buy the truth, sell it not. When you buy something, you trade something away in order to obtain the thing that you're purchasing. And what Solomon is saying to you and I is this, Whatever it is that you need to remove from your life in order to make room for the truth of God, sell it. Get rid of it. If there is something that's crowding your mind, if there's something that's choking your time or what you can give yourself to, sell it. Get rid of it. Buy the truth. And if you have the truth, the second part of it, he says, sell it not. Don't trade it away. There is nothing in this world worth obtaining at the expense of truth. Well, you know, if I just get another job, then we could have, but it's going to cost, and it'll mean Sundays, and it'll mean morning devotions, and I know that my attention will be consumed. Do you know what you're doing? You're selling the truth. And I can tell you this by the Spirit of God, you'll regret it. You'll regret it. Buy the truth, sell it not. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this incredible psalm. We thank you for the truth that's declared to us in it. We thank you for what you give. And Father, as we just consider and meditate, as we lay our lives open and our hearts are before your Holy Spirit tonight, we ask you, God, that your conviction would fall upon us. I believe, God, that there's probably some here tonight that at one time in their life, at a different place where the sun was in its position in the sky, there was a greater trust, a greater reliance, a greater investment in the word. But those things have faded because of what we call real life, and we've allowed the word to become choked, and we've become unfruitful in the process. God, I just pray tonight in Jesus' name that by your spirit and by your power, you would give us the grace to lay down what we need to lay down, Oh, God, that we might know you in the way that you've designed and desired to know for us to know you. 
So Lord, please reignite a fire in us. Give us again a pure and holy passion for your word. Write it upon our hearts. Oh, that we would meditate in it day and night. Oh, that we would be like the tree that's planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Oh, that you would revive us again, O oh God, and give us a passion for your word. For it is you, Lord. It teaches us who you are. So help us, lead us, instruct us, change us. Our hearts are before you. We believe, O oh God, that you're worth it. And we ask you to make it so. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Tonight as we close out the service, the altar is here, it's open. Sometimes you hear a message and God gets your heart and he speaks something to you in such a way and you know that if you just leave the building and go get in the car and go to dinner or go home or feel this, the ray of sun, that the message somehow is going to kind of sift away or the birds are going to rob it away. But sometimes there's a time when you just need to respond and say, God, there's something that you did tonight and I want it to be lasting. And there's something, Lord, maybe that I even need to lay down at your foot or bring back to the cross and bring my life back in. And if you want to during this song, just maybe come forward Spend a moment at the altar. Have your time with God. Say, God, please change me. God, take this out of my life. God, revive me. Strengthen me. Give me more of yourself. I believe that God, just meet with you here in the simplicity of that action of faith. Nobody's going to touch you or come up behind you or anything like that. Between you and God, spend your moment and then just return to your seat. Ministry, nothing magical about it, but it's an opportunity to respond. And I give that to you. And so as we stand together and we sing, the altar is open. God bless you.